InfoTrack continues. Once again, here's Chris Whitting. How much of a factor is random chance when it comes to staying healthy and living to a ripe old age? This fascinating question is explored in the book, Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. And we're joined by the co-author, Anupam B. Jaina, MD, PhD. Dr. Jaina, you begin the book by pointing out that chance plays a significant factor in everyone's life, who we meet, where we live, germs and pollution we're exposed to, and so on. Does fate play the ultimate role in our lives, or can we beat the odds through medical research? Yeah, you know, Chris, we can beat a lot of the odds. Some things are out of our control that's part of life, and, you know, we sort of distinguish between two types of random or chance occurrences. So there's one is a person gets cancer who has no risk factors for cancer, or they're walking across the street and they're hit by a car. Totally random, not something you can predict. But there are a lot of things that happen in our health that are functions of chance, but that we can predict. And so that's what a large part of the book is about, is trying to figure out what those areas are and what we can do about them. You mentioned the phrase natural experiments in your book. Could you give us an example of what's a natural experiment? Sure. Let me give you a story from one of the later chapters in the book. So when you go to the grocery store and you see a bag of chips, it costs $1.99. And there's a reason it costs $1.99. It's because the human mind is tricked into thinking that it's much cheaper than $2 because the first digit is a one. And psychologists and behavioral economists, they call that left digit bias. It's the propensity of the mind to focus on that leftmost digit. Now, what does a grocery store pricing tactic have to do with healthcare? Well, if you look at people who go to the hospital with a heart attack, and you look at someone who's, let's say, 79 years old in 51 weeks, they're just about to turn 80, it turns out that they are much more likely to be offered a cardiac bypass surgery than someone who is 80 years old in one week. And the reason why is because when a doctor sees a 79-year-old or 79.9-year-old, they think to themselves, this person's in their quote-unquote 70s. And if they see someone who's 80 years old in one day, they think of that person as their quote-unquote 80s. And of course, this is all just total chance, right? Like you have a heart attack a week before you turn 80 versus a week after you turn 80, you would not think that you would receive very different types of care, but nonetheless, you do. And so this is an example of a natural experiment where two groups of people who are otherwise very similar, someone just below 80 or just above 80, are taken down these two different paths of care 20% more likely to get a cardiac bypass surgery if you're just below 80. And then we can look at what the outcomes of that are. It's fascinating stuff. And your book is full of stories like that. And maybe we could touch on a couple of more. One chapter you have, why are kids with summer birthdays more likely to get the flu? Yeah, it's a good one. So this is based on, like a lot of the chapters in the book and stories, is based on my own experiences. So we have a a five-year-old son and a daughter as well. So a few years ago, our son, who was born in August, I was taking him to the annual pediatrician visit. So you typically take your child to the doctor around their birthday. So because he's born in August, I took him to the pediatrician in August. And as I'm walking out of the office, the nurse says to me, come back in a few weeks. We'll have the flu shot available in the clinic and your son can get vaccinated. And the first thing I thought to myself is, wow, had my son been born three weeks later, I would have gone to that pediatrician's checkup and he would have walked out of that visit with the flu shot because the flu shot was literally there in the fridges 
of the office that day. And it's totally random. And if you look at the data, you see that kids with summer birthdays, let's say an August or July birthday, they are 15 percentage points less likely to get the flu shot than a child with, let's say, an October birthday. And the reason why is those October-born kids, when they go for their annual checkups at three years old or four years old, the flu shot is literally in the office when they're there. And so they can get the shot before they leave. You might then say, well, what happens to these summer-born kids? Well, they're less likely to get the flu shot and they're more likely to get the flu. And guess what? Their family members, you know, let's say grandpa lives in the house. Their family members are more likely to get the flu. So it's this totally random thing where your birth month affects the likelihood of you getting the flu. And I don't think most people would have thought about that, but it makes sense sort of in hindsight. Our guest is Bapu Jaina, a medical doctor and Ph.D. And the book he is co-author of is Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. Wondering if you could tell us one more story out of your book. How about the one about are marathons hazardous to your health? That's another story from my personal life. So my wife was running a race a few years ago, and it was a a long-distance race, her first time doing it. And she wanted me to watch her on the race route because of that. And so I said, okay. I knew that the race route went by the hospital where I work which is called Massachusetts General Hospital. It's a big teaching hospital in Boston. And so I'm driving down the main thoroughfare in Boston, and I'm intending to go park at the hospital so I can watch her on the race route. And I can't get off that main road because the roads are blocked. And the roads are blocked because the race is going through that area. So I turn around, go back home, and then hours later I see my wife and I tell her what happened. And she says to me, well, what happened to all the people who needed to get to the hospital that day? And that was just an offhand comment. But fast forward a few months, we got data from a number of different cities, 10 different cities over 10 different years. And what we see is that people who live in the areas that are affected by a marathon, they live along the race route or the nearby areas. If they have a cardiac arrest, meaning your heart stops, or if they have a heart attack on the day of a marathon, their mortality rate goes up about 15 to 20 percent on the day of a marathon compared to any other day in the surrounding weeks and compared to areas that are just outside of the marathon-affected routes. So these are places that might be, you know, 10 miles away in the same general geographic area, but not literally on the route. And the other thing that you find is that ambulance transport times go up. So there's a delay in care for people who have cardiac emergencies on the days of marathons, which means they can't get to the hospital fast enough and they're more likely to die as a result. And again, Chris, this is not a story about people running the marathon and keeling over. This is a story about people who are older, who just happen to live in that area and can't get to the hospital in time. Doctor, it seems there's a lot of contradictory health research. One study might say eating eggs is bad for you. Another study a month later says eating eggs is good for you. And so there's a lot of doubt and skepticism among consumers. How does your book factor into that situation? Well, I'd say eating ice cream is good for everybody. No, uh, that's that's not my medical advice. You know, the way it factors in, Chris, is I think it gives people a framework to understand a little bit more about what they hear about in the news and what they read. We actually had a piece in the New York Times just a few weeks ago about this very issue of nutritional science and why it's failing us, why it's bad. And we give a couple of ideas of how you could do it better. So let me just give you one quick example. Suppose you're interested in understanding whether or not 
certain foods like ice cream are good or bad for your health. I mean, we think that they're bad, but how bad are they? How bad is ice cream really? Do we know? The only way you could figure that out is if you randomize some people to eating a certain diet and randomize another group of people, again, this is totally random, to not have that diet, and then you follow up their health outcomes. Or maybe you look at things like their blood pressure, their cholesterol, measures of sugar control in the body. Now, if you can't do a randomized trial, can you do one of these natural experiments that I just described? And I think the answer is that you can. So here's one example. Suppose you go to the doctor and your doctor says, I'm going to do a blood test to screen for diabetes. It's called a hemoglobin A1C. And if you're above a certain threshold, you have something called prediabetes. And if you're below that threshold, there's no concern. Now, that threshold is just a number. Let's say it's 5.7. So if you go in the doctor and you have a hemoglobin A1C of 5.6 versus 5.75, it's basically the same. But two people who go into the appointment are going to walk out with different impressions of their health and they might change their health behaviors as a result. So that would be a good natural experiment to figure out what's the effect of diet by leveraging this sort of random fact that some people just below or just above a threshold are going to be recommended to do very different things, even though they're basically the same type of person. So your doctor's advice would be to follow the usual good health regimens and not worry about it so much, I guess. Yeah, I think I'd be cautious about what I read. I mean, I think basic diet, basic exercise, fruits, vegetables, fish, those sorts of things like a Mediterranean diet, I think most people would agree is generally quite good. But, you know, when you think about things like artificial sweeteners, the WHO just released recommendations about them. And, you know, I think that the recommendations are not based on the highest quality science. So I wouldn't run out and change my diet as a result unless you're eating 25 packs of those Splendas, then you might want to be concerned about that. But if you're drinking a Diet Coke every day, should you now stop drinking Diet Coke and drink a full calorie Coke? I think the answer would be no. That wouldn't make sense to me. So I think use your judgment, but know that diet and exercise are generally probably good things. Well, the book is Random Acts of Medicine, The Hidden Forces That Sway Doctors, Impact Patients, and Shape Our Health. Anupam B. Jaina, MD, PhD. Doctor, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. I appreciate it. You're listening to InfoTrack, a production of Syndication Networks of Chicago.